Welcome to Meowcore, the podcast where I, Laura, show my cool friend Panya the music that I like, Meow. and that is mostly hard rock and heavy metal. Hi, Panya. Hello. How are you doing today? The sun is shining. It's not freezing. I think it's going to be a pretty good day. Yeah, and as we know, Panya is solar powered, so it will be a good day. Yeah. Right. Today, we will listen to a band that I discovered a bit later than all my other 70s favorites. They're called Boston. They Boston's are not brain... heavy metal. I thought this was supposed to be hard rock and heavy metal. Uh-huh. Yeah, it is. That's hard rock, Boston. You think so? Mm-hmm. Okay. You'll see. Okay, I'll see. You will show me. And they are the brainchild... Uh, of uh, a gentleman called uh, Tom Schultz. He uh, graduated from MIT and he was working a very technical job. I forgot what it was. Something, let me see, design, Okay, that engineering. makes two 70s bands I know of that contain really smart dudes. Mm-hmm. Huh. Where, who was the other smart dude? Queen. Uh, someone had a... Was Brian May the one with the degree there? Yeah. Yeah. What was what was it in? I believe, the joke is rocket science. I don't actually know. <laughs> Let's go find out. Mm -hmm. Astrophysics. Oh. Astrophysics, which uh, that lends itself to the joke rocket science. But, I mean, astrophysics this is not is... easy. Holy cow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, he has a... He has a doctorate uh brian may i mean has a doctorate took a lot of time then and a lot of effort yeah okay tom schultz uh, was working as a product design engineer at polaroid when he started boston basically he wrote a bunch of songs and found himself musicians to perform them uh, because he he had recorded the biggest part of the demos already in his basement with equipment that he had either bought or made himself. Just by himself, he'd recorded parts of these demos? Yeah, large parts of it. He plays the bass. I'm, I'm not sure about drums, but he had already recorded bass and guitars. And uh, he got together with um, a wonderful singer named what Brad What did he Delp. need other musicians for if he'd already recorded most of it himself? <laughs> Because he wanted to go on tour and make ah, it big. and He didn't and, want to continue working at Polaroid. He wanted to be an artist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, let's listen to probably their most famous song, More Than a Feeling. Okay. From uh, their first album from 76. We'll watch it on YouTube. Ah, you always be giving me YouTube videos and I always be getting distracted. Okay. This is the only video you will watch today. Okay, okay. You will see Mr. Engineer, Mr. Tom Schultz, on the right side of the singer with straight hair and a silvery kind of uh, outfit. Okay. Let's watch More Than a Feeling by Boston. You know, with that fade in, I have to wonder what his plan was for playing it live. 
if the recording was specifically faded in? Like, how do you handle that live, especially during that era? How do you handle that? He must have had a plan. If he wanted to tour, he must have had a plan. He would just start it at the beginning of one of the phrases. Yeah, it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't fading in when they were playing it live, as far as I remember. You know, it's interesting. I remember, oh God, long time ago, back in the, the 1990s, um, when the Beatles anthology series came out. Um, mm -hmm. There was there was the television documentary and there was the, the book and the CDs and all. And one of the things I remember really distinctly was in the later Beatles period. I know we're, it sounds like we're getting off track, but bear with me. In the later Beatles period, they kind of stopped touring because the things they were doing with the sound, they couldn't, they didn't know how to duplicate in a live performance. Oh, like Paperback Man in particular is the one that sticks in my head because it had those enormous stacks of their voices on top of each other. And they couldn't figure out how to do that in a live performance. So they just stopped touring. They stopped, There were other reasons, but that was one of the reasons was that the things they were doing with the sound, they couldn't figure out how to duplicate live. Mm. And it makes me wonder in conjunction with the way that like – you can hear as you're listening, we talked about this uh, last episode too, the layering of the voices and the repetition of the, mm -hmm. of the, to make it sound like an echo. And I know that it's possible to do that in a live performance with two singers whose voices can, are, are skilled enough to match that closely, but maybe have mm -hmm. slightly different timbers. But I know in recording, that's usually not what happens. Usually in recording, it's the same singer stacking mm -hmm. themselves. And watching this one, and okay, we're going to admit that it was good that we watched it. Watching this one, it doesn't look like anybody else is singing the same line. So that's not how they would achieve that effect in live. Yeah, and for that the response, it would be other people in the band singing. Uh -huh. yeah. And that leads me to the idea, the awareness, the thought that live versions of songs especially with all of the the different things that you can do with layering and stacking of sound must by necessity sound different be almost a different arrangement of the same song at least until we reached the era where there were playback that was planned to go along with the song and if you do that live it limits what you're capable of in terms of wandering off and having weird solos or the musician the singer or the yeah. lead just talking in the middle of the song mm -hmm. unless you have a really skilled um crew who can pick up on the subtle cues and like pause the playback or i don't even know how that works i would love to know how that works mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I get it. And Boston had so many layers in the music. Yeah. Uh, that they probably a lot of them were not they were not able to reproduce. And I was I was watching a video about this song and wondering so many things that a listener who is not a musician cannot hear. And even probably musicians cannot hear. But the guy just decided to put him in there because it was fun, because he loves this stuff. I think to say cannot hear is perhaps a bit, 
I don't think that's the correct kind of word. Mm-hmm. From my perspective, it's not, oh, we can't hear these things. It's, we don't know what we're hearing. It's the yeah. same way with subtleties of color in paintings. And the thing is, you don't realize what you're hearing. You don't realize, for example, that there are multi-tracked guitars in in some of these phrases that what you're hearing is, is if it was played live, would take something like five or six guitarists to play. Mm-hmm. But if you took it away, even the most unmusically educated listener would hear the difference. So it's not that we can't hear it. We just don't know what we're hearing. We don't know the words for it. We don't realize until you change it that it's it must be caused by a thing. Mm, yeah, I get you. It is a strange feeling um, hearing that this intro is two 12-string guitars and one... Uh, electric guitar without distortion. It does sound impressive. All this entire song sounds impressive, but what? What? A shock to me. A bit of a shock. A positive, but strange. Hmm. It may just be because this particular song is something I know well, or or just other musicians, or I'm not quite sure how to say what I'm thinking, but. To me, that didn't seem like a shock. Like, that's that's the way music is, is multiple instruments layered together even from the beginning. And some songs start off with a single instrument, and some songs start off with the multiple instruments, and it's just a variation in the way the writer chooses to make the music. And, like, this links into other parts of the song. One of the things that I really like about this song in a musical sense is the variation in both the number of instruments playing at any one time and in the volume. Mm-hmm. And it's not just a question of more instruments join in and it becomes louder. There are places, like even that very beginning, where it's not... Loud is not quite the word I'm looking for. But... Yeah. As composers would say, it was piano. Was piano. No, and that's they, not they the word I'm looking down. for either. There's a there's a specific word that I have completely dynamic. The dynamics. Mm. The dynamics of the volume change and it's not a change predicated on the number of instruments playing or the existence of drums or anything like that. It's it's partly a change in volume and partly a change in like intensity. And this song shifts up and down that scale instead of always being at that, at one point in that scale, you know, Mm -hmm. there's that point after the first chorus where it drops down real quiet and it's not just one guitar, although it does kind of sound like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are multiple guitars in that, brief bridge before he moves into the second verse mm-hmm. and I really like that kind of effect in music where a song intensifies and then comes back down and it's not even a change in the in the the beat like it's still moving at the same pace and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not making any sense here whatsoever you are you are take some skill to change change things up like yeah. this within one song. Yeah. 
Okay. And the singer can do the similar thing with his voice. And actually, you sent me the video you were talking about, and I watched it. And there was one point where the 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 commentator was talking, and he was going, oh, it's so amazing what the singer can do with his voice. And we've talked about what he did in the past on other episodes. And I want to point out again that although the the octave jump, the note jump that he makes in that long note in the chorus is amazing. It's not the reason that he goes that that the the note moves three times is because he can't make that jump from the low note to the very highest note in one move. Mm-hmm. That's why it's, he goes from falsetto to uh, normal voice for the end. Yeah. Like he goes, uh-huh. he goes up one, he goes up and it's a pretty big jump. And then the highest note is a much smaller jump from the falsetto note. And I don't mm-hmm. think most people can. I don't think he could have made the jump from the, the starter note. I'm holding my hands like you can see me from the starter note <laughs> all the way up to that highest note in one move. I don't think he mm-hmm. could have done it. I mean, most people can't. That's, that's not, even when you flip into falsetto, that's hard on your voice. That's hard on your throat. Mm-hmm. So he just did the, the thing that would make it easier for him. So, and it sounds it good. It sounds good. Yeah. It has a good effect. And it doesn't strain his voice all at the same time. Mm-hmm. And um, you will hear also in other songs that Tom Schultz's guitars are kind of blunt. This video that we watched by Rick Beato, he was Less. talking about an increased mid-range in the guitar sound. I don't know what that means, really. I don't either, and I don't care. But it sounds... I describe it as blunt, and it reminds me of Tony Iommi's sound. The only two guitar players I know from those times that sounded this way. Very low, but also kind of... I don't have a better word than blunt for describing guitar tones. I'll, I'll try to listen for that. Um, I had a thought, actually, when we got to the end of this song. I want to bring it up and see what you think. So, remember, before we listened to the song, I said, oh, I didn't know this was hard rock. And then I thought about that, and something popped up on the YouTube video at the end of the song that made me realize what I was really thinking. I'm Mm -hmm. used to thinking of any song, rock, any rock and roll song of whatever subgenre, from before about 1985 as classic rock. Just this lumped-in genre that covers all kinds of stuff, honestly. I'm used to thinking of that as classic rock or oldies, which is Mm -hmm. really undescriptive. Doesn't tell you anything about what kind of song you're going to be getting in any way. It's okay. I think there's there's magazines called Classic Rock. There's a big magazine with that name. People kind of know what to expect. Things from the 60s and 70s that have guitars, drums, and bass. Yeah. And I was wondering if, for you, if one of the things that makes this hard rock is the existence of electric guitars in the sound. Yeah, and the the fact that they are very often used with distortion. Okay. Okay, that that helps me think about that. That that makes that a lot clearer mm-hmm. for me. And not the not the way they were used in the sixties, where they were like kind of ringing this pure sound. Yeah. Uh, but but distorted, like Iommi's, like Pages, 
like this I like one. pure sound, but this sounds good too. Mm-hmm. And uh, another thing that this gentleman pointed out on YouTube is that the refrain begins with a guitar riff. It it's the start of the refrain is not singing, and that's something something that is kind of rare even in in our genre. Huh. Before he goes I, more than I feel, it yeah. there's this da 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 da, da yeah. and the clapping of hands. I don't think about that as being part of the chorus, but yeah. that may be. So it repeats right before the chorus. It it becomes essential. It becomes one of the things you anticipate when the chorus is coming. Right, right. I suppose I think of that as being part of the end of the verse. But then that brings us mm. to the thought that the the language and the way that people who are steeped in a particular uh, discipline use when they're talking about their discipline, the things in their discipline, is often different from what an outsider would, would perceive it as, someone who's not that steeped in it. You know, mm -hmm. The way that I describe and talk about literature because I'm trained in looking at it a certain way is different from the way that you look at it or even the way that someone who doesn't read as much as I do looks at it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I get that. And I think it's probably the same is true with music. Mm -hmm. That he's he's thinking about it and describing it as a certain way and and talking about A lines and B lines and I'm going it's just it's a chorus. What are you why are you picking it apart? <laughs> mm -hmm. But Though it him, was interesting to me to see that like in poetry the way you can number rhymes A B A B, you can also name true. melodic lines. That's that's true. Okay, I didn't it didn't connect with me that that's what he was referring to. Mm -hmm. And I also remembered that the reason I think of these seventies bands as hard rock is also that all of my metal artists quote them as influences, and I've always been curious about who taught Eddie Van Halen to play like this and. Was it? Oh, Jimmy Page. Who taught Jimmy Page to play like this? And I kind of connect them together. Okay. Okay. That's another thing. I mean, I think of, uh, in some ways, I think with some of those musicians, especially the earlier ones, the 60s and 70s, nobody taught them to play like that. They were just messing around. They were just mm. jamming and playing and, oh, that's interesting. It's like, um, oh, hell. Jean-Michel Jarre. Mm -hmm. Nobody taught him that stuff. He was just messing around. He was just going, okay, yeah. what happens when I do this? And I think the same mm -hmm. thing is true with a lot of these musicians that inspired our current musicians. That it wasn't mm -hmm. even about someone taught them, although maybe someone taught them the basics. And you can trace guitar playing back through different instruments for thousands of years. Yeah, that's a fun game. I'll, I would leave it for another life. Mm. Or at least another episode. <laughs> okay, let's go listen to um, some big keyboard songs. Ooh, not much keyboards in this one. No, but not really. The thing I love about Boston, apart from the very these blunt guitars and the amazing singer, of course, 
is all these keyboards. We'll go to Spotify and we'll listen to Foreplay Long Time. Okay. Okay, let's listen to Foreplay Long Time by Boston. I feel like the end of that one, I kind of got a little bored because it got repetitive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess. All the all the fireworks happened before that. Yeah. Yeah. Although, actually, when the when the singing started, it finally connected to me why the song is called what it's called. <laughs> yeah. Like that whole musical part at the beginning. Really, really gorgeous, really interesting. That's the foreplay. Mm -hmm. There's the foreplay. And then he comes in. Yeah. yeah. Been a long time. I should go. It's time to go. Okay. Yeah. I like that uh, Brad seems is singing these high, optimistic sounding, soulful vocals. And then the guitar underneath is tuned really low. Boston has this, these bases of very heavy guitars. It, it seems like it doesn't fit, but it does. These ha these hopeful songs with these high vocals, and these harmonies, and then the guitar underneath. I don't think about it that way. I think of... It sounds like you're associating lower pitches, lower notes, with melancholy and sadness. And I think of it more as a grounding. Mm -hmm. Like the, the, the low the low guitars, the, the drums, that's the the roots that are keeping the song from drifting off into the stratosphere. It's ah. it's a grounding thing. It's not, oh, this is sad, it's just this is this is the grounding. This is this is the basis on which we're building this tall high thing. Like if you build mm -hmm. any kind of tall thing, any kind of, of, of high thing, needs a solid foundation. Something <laughs> fixed to the earth, fixed to the ground. It needs a solid foundation. And that's what I mm. think of those, those low sounds as. That's the foundation. You're laying this and, and it's, it's low and then you put this higher stuff on top of it. I think I'm I'm doing that because the only people who have a tone similar to a guitar tone similar to Tom Schultz's are Tony Iommi and the guitar players of Pentagram. So that sound was always associated with demons in my head. Aha. Aha. Whereas yeah. I think of it as as being associated with the uh like the kind of, of low drum beats that often open up any kind of chanting or, mm -hmm. or non-Christian religious ceremonies, especially mm -hmm. pagan-oriented ones, are often underpinned by a drum beat that's like a heartbeat and it's low. Mm -hmm. and, and so to me, I think of that when I, when I listen not that this song necessarily makes me think of pagan things, but lower sounds make me think of that, of that kind of underpinning heartbeat drumbeat. I see. Um, 
but I did notice, like, this song also has the clapping in it in, in the choral parts, in the chorus parts. Um, but I don't know if it was because they were more audible or something. Like, I listened to it in this one as compared to More Than a Feeling, and there's something electric, something electronic, something mechanical underpinning those claps that I didn't hear in the other song. Like, it's definitely, mm. I definitely hear, like, people clapping sounds. It doesn't sound like just a drum beat. But there's something underpinning that that I can hear that is mechanical. And I found that to be interesting. I also don't think it's bad. I mean, when you listen to live music in particular, the audience often claps along with the drums and it enhances the, the particular drum sound. So to me, that's sort of familiar and normal. It's just I was I was listening for things under and that's what I heard. Mm hmm. OK. Let's go listen to my party song. Party I, song? I party very hard all by myself. <laughs> you party very hard. <laughs> OK. <laughs> I have dances. I know the keyboard parts by heart. It's called smoking. So I need to get you a keyboard is what you're saying. Oh, no, I When we I decide have... to form a band and I'm the singer, you're going to play the keyboards. That's what I'm hearing. Can, can I just do uh, hand movements? I'll do interpretative dance to keyboards. <laughs> I don't think I could play them. Why not? I have specific moves. Why couldn't you play them? I don't know. I've never done that. You could learn. Okay. Or we could yeah. just be an Thank acapella you. group if you, if yeah. you would prefer. It could be an acapella And group. my hand moves. Well, yeah. yes, obviously, they'd be dancing. Okay, so we'll, let's go listen <laughs> yeah. to Smokin' by Boston. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, he said, all right. I was bopping and I was dancing and just stopped. Where'd my party go? <laughs> Who killed the party? Give it back. I'm so sorry. I'm sorry. The album's out there. You can play it anytime. I can play that song anytime I want. Yeah. Yeah, see? Keyboard. Party song. Keyboard organ. That's the sort of song that, like, when they play it live... Or, or I can imagine when they play it live, he, he's just like, take it away, George. And he just, I don't know who the keyboard artist is. Take it away. And, <laughs> and he just tears up the keyboards. And by the end of it, he's like, the keyboard artist is like dripping with sweat. And his fingers are just shaking. And he can't play anything. They have to, the next song in the set has to have no keyboards because the keyboard artist is done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, both physically and emotionally. Uh -huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like, you'll be glad to know there's no keyboard solo in the next song. You're off the hook, man. <laughs> yeah. There's one particular moment where a thousand suns seem to rise as something new begins with the keyboards. I can't remember it, but what moment in the song it was. I, I, I don't pay attention to it that way. I was just going bop, 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 bop. <laughs> It makes me think of some of the famous uh, 
dancing scenes in movies. Not like the club scenes, but like the ones from uh, The Breakfast Club, things like that. Makes me think of that. Mm. I haven't seen that. Not even like serious dancing, but just like this sort of, of, I don't even know how to describe it. Just joy. Yeah, just just this sort of of let your body loose dancing that isn't mm-hmm. isn't any kind of the dancing is not I keep thinking organized and that's not quite right but like it doesn't conform to any style. Mm-hmm. It's just your limbs kind of everywhere. <laughs> I don't I don't know how to yeah. describe it. We'll listen to one more song. So far I have four songs from the same album, their debut album. Didn't they do anything else? They did a lot of other things. They were, after this album came out, this album was huge. And they went on tour with Blue Oyster Cult. And then they were on tour with Black Sabbath. They did a lot of a lot of touring. They did other albums. We'll, I, we have room for two more songs from other albums. Stuff from the late 80s, 90s, I'm not that familiar with, but it's probably good. So, let's get a slower one. It's called Hitch a Ride. Again, 1976. Who are we hitching a ride with? Mm, Hope, the future. Oh, that kind of song. Okay. Then let's listen to Hitch a Ride by Boston. I've gotten so used to listening to modern songs that don't modern songs that emphasize the singer. Mhm. There are a really I'm sure there must be bands musicians in modern music in genres that have pauses for just the instruments. When I turn on the radio and I'm fed music by people who decide what I should listen to, what to be played, they don't emphasize those songs. They don't play those songs. They play the songs that emphasize the singers, that emphasize the lyrics. Even if you can't hear the lyrics in the mix over whatever else is going on, there's still very few points in those songs where I feel like you're just listening to instruments that that somebody is getting to to go off on their instrument and do whatever. It's always arranged to underpin the lyrics, underpin the singer yeah. or singers. I wonder and if I that's think it's linked. a strange decision because instruments sing in a universal language. So let them sing. It's okay to let them sing sometimes. I'm not really thinking about it that way. Like, there was a period of time when I was in high school, or late high school, college, a little after that, where I was fascinated by J-pop and anime Mm -hmm. songs. And for all that I studied Japanese, there was a lot in those songs' lyrics that I had no idea what they were saying. And I think that's the, the period where I really began to perceive the voices as another instrument, because I could pick up on what was going on in the song by the way the voices sounded. Even though I had no idea what the lyrics actually were saying, I could pick up on it by by the sound of the voice. And then if mm-hmm. I wanted to, I could go look up the lyrics and, and the translations. But that's not relevant to what I'm noticing here, which is that a pretty significant chunk of this song, and in fact, 
all the songs except maybe more than a feeling half the song is just instrumental Mm -hmm. half the song doesn't involve anything lyrical with words at all yeah and again we're we're looking at a song that it's not quite like smoking in the sense that i expect the soloist to be dripping with sweat and their fingers shaking afterwards but there's definitely a point here where the other musicians are looking at the one the one guitarist and going okay it's your go and he just goes mhm uh, toward the end it seemed like they were taking turns because i was hearing two different guitars mm-hmm. and then they started harmonizing yeah, well, that goes back to what we were saying with uh, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, that they're sort of passing the cue around, you know, almost mm-hmm. like a, a game. And we were talking then about how sometimes it sounded like they were challenging each other. And in this case, I don't think that was it. It was it was, it was, was more like tossing a ball. It's like, okay, I'm going to have a go, and then it's your turn, and you're going to do something different. And then it's someone else's turn, and it's not a competition. It's just taking turns. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that thrill me about bands that have at least two guitar players. It happens in metal too. You sit, you play a little bit, I play a little bit, and then we play together. And that's the moment that really makes me very happy. Right. I would like to hear more of that kind of thing with passing that back and forth between drummer, keyboardist, guitarist. Mm-hmm. Like, it's interesting when two guitars do it, but I want to hear that in a group with a greater variety of instruments. I think that Mm -hmm. would be interesting. Yep, you're right. Okay. Now we'll go to their second album. It's called Don't Look Back. Comes out two years years after that, so it's 1978. And we'll listen to the track that's called Don't Look Back. The title track... Let's listen to Don't Look Back by Boston. That's a different album a couple of years later, but both that song and the one before, the end of the song is just following this bass note into the darkness. Yeah. And it's probably still Tom Schultz playing the bass, their founder. He's good bassist. Not live, but in the studio. There was a lot more emphasis on the bass in that one, actually. Mm-hmm. It had its its distinct parts. Yeah. Almost a, a bass solo. Mm-hmm. But again, My, you can tell it's a it's a guitar player's band. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't guess that's a bad thing. I don't, I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a lover of keyboard sounds. I, guitars are fun and you can do a lot of really interesting things with them that you can't do with a keyboard. But I think we've had this discussion before. I am fonder of the pure sounds than you are. You enjoy the kind of the more distorted sounds and I like the purer sounds. And keyboards are mm-hmm. not often distorted, certainly not on the fly. Mm-hmm. My favorite bit of this one is when the chorus begins and Tom is playing this this ominous riff na 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 yeah. and and Brad is singing at the same time I 
finally see the dawn that's coming. It's so nice. I don't. You hear darker things in in some of the some of the sounds than I do. I just I don't think of these things as as dark or ominous. Ah. Uh. But it is a nice contrast, isn't it? It's a good riff, and it's a good contrast. Nice interaction. Yeah. yeah. At some point, I would like to be able to have a song where I can literally listen to all of the different parts separately from each other. Because, again, mm -hmm. I think we've talked about this before. I have trouble paying attention to anything else when there's lyrics happening. I get focused mm -hmm. on the sense of the lyrics and what the singer's voice is doing. And I lose whatever's going on underneath that most of the time. And to have mm -hmm. the ability to listen to that separately or, or listen to a purely instrumental version of a song is, is a treat for me because then I can ignore the lyrics. They aren't mm -hmm. there. I don't have to listen to them. And you mm -hmm. might have noticed I can pick up more about what the instruments are doing in any kind of song where there is the instrumental bits. Yeah, when when, when there's no singing. Mm -hmm. I will get you those. People separate them in editing programs because bands very rarely put them out just like that. Separate guitar tracks, separate vocals. But I have a few of other bands that I can send you. If we ever get a guest interviewer musician maybe they can share some of that with us talk to us about how that works mm -hmm. i would love to learn more about recording that kind of thing and what it feels like as a musician to listen to the separate pieces and then the whole track together and then making decisions when when you're mixing yeah what's that about what's that like? i would love to have a conversation with someone about that I've heard about musicians fighting about who's going to be louder in the mix. Oh, please. Everybody should have equal volume, except that doesn't <laughs> always work because the drums would probably drown everyone out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. So, after this album, the band, just like all other 70s bands you can think of, uh, is uh, exhausted. And full of the drugs. Yeah, and uh, very tired from touring. And on top of that, they have, for many years, they have issues with their record labels. Why? Uh, there are court cases. Oh, uh, I thought that this... was a modern music thing of record labels abusing no. their artists, but apparently not. Apparently, I'm just naive. Mm -hmm. That was a, a big problem for Boston. That's one of the reasons they're not very well known. They were not very well promoted. There's no live DVD from the 70s. Like Led Zeppelin made their own musical movie. Okay, back up a step. Yeah. Because I don't... Mm. Almost every song you've played for me has been familiar. I don't know mm -hmm. most of them the way I know more than a feeling, which gets a lot of radio play. But every single one I've listened to it and gone, that sounds familiar. I've heard that before. So you mm -hmm. saying they're not very well known sort of is sort of jarring for me because I don't think of it okay. that way at all. They're very familiar to me and I but it may not be a radio play thing or it may be a case of in the past they weren't well known and now that there are widespread classic rock and oldies stations 
that they become mm. more well-known. Or it may just be that my dad liked them and so I got exposed to it a lot. They did have a lot of success second half of the 70s and most of the 80s, mostly first half of the 80s. Uh, but th these troubles with the record companies were always there and uh, they made it worse after that. Mm. Mm. And I did look for live performances, but there was, there was nothing recorded with uh, good quality. The white noise was as loud as the band. So you'll have to take my word for the fact that Boston sound really, really nice live. <laughs> I mean, I certainly hope so. Mm -hmm. But although that makes me think in the past, mm, call it decade or so that I've really been aware of it. There's been uh, lots of talk at the sci-fi conventions that I go to about self-publishing, about smaller publishing companies about how to promote yourself and about the fact that the rise of the internet and things like on-demand publishing has changed the liter literary scene in a way that big name publishing companies don't really want to acknowledge or recognize. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering if the rise of the internet did the same thing for music and I just didn't know about it. Mm. I mean, there mm. are sites like Bandcamp and such. But how many big big successes come out of of Bandcamp? I don't or know how just, to look. I don't know how to look. Should we just think about whether people manage to make their living on Bandcamp? I know and there are some people huge. who've made their living starting that way and in their, uh, I guess the best way to put it, in their smaller genres they've been quite successful. But I guess that brings us to the question of how do you define success? <laughs> Does success mean yep. that someone can mention your name in Australia or Thailand and people know who you are? Like random people? Or does success mean that within the group of people who would ordinarily listen or read the stuff that you do, you're well known? Or does it just mean mm -hmm. that you can put a roof over your head and food on the table? Which mm -hmm. just is a silly word to use there, but, you know, what exactly does success mean? Does it mean that you have concerts in football stadiums that sell out? Or does it mm -hmm. mean that any town you go to, you can pick a, a smaller musical venue and fill that up? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. These are questions. <laughs> the music scene changed. These are questions that uh, <laughs> I've been hearing that uh, big promoters, big, big record labels now expect an artist to have a big following on social media before they sign them. That's that's strange. That does seem backwards to me. That they expect you to already be well-known before they'll take you on. I mean, on the one hand, from a purely business perspective, that makes sense. If you already have a following somewhere, that means you are known quantity and a safe bet. However, I'm not going to just... I, I'm not going to talk very much about my job because it's not really... Um, it's not really a good idea. We'll just leave it as I work for a bank 
And so a lot of what is discussed in terms of my higher level training is risk and what are good mm -hmm. risks and what are not good risks. And one of the core tenets of my company's culture is the idea that there are acceptable risks. Because they're risks, they are never safe. But you cannot grow as a business if you don't take any risks. <laughs> and I feel like maybe somebody needs to smack some of these record companies with some of that, that you cannot grow as a business without taking some risks. Um, yeah. And yesterday I sort of stepped sideways out of a potential discussion with a older an older gentleman who was commenting on the fact that he didn't think that any music after about 1990 was any good. Oh. I don't have enough information to properly have that discussion with him, but he did make a couple of interesting points regarding how uh, highly publicized artists often sound quite similar to each other. And I think mm -hmm. that connects back to this idea of a safe bet. That is sad. Yeah. And it, But it's very strange to me to hear the, this kind of stuff because I listen to metal and metal has been progressing madly. And we have great quality artists. But people talk about what's on the radio, I guess, the, the big successes. Right. Well, and... The thing that I often think about, especially now that I almost never listen to the radio at all anymore, I just sort of, whatever I pick up online, whatever other people introduce me to, and I go and I acquire some of that, or I listen to it on Spotify, and I really, really have a heavy focus on choosing what do I personally want to listen to, not what somebody else is choosing for me. And mm -hmm. I've learned, partly as a result of that, that what you listen to on the radio is very, very heavily curated. Mm -hmm. And it's not curated in a sense anymore of the radio DJ going, I think this sounds cool. It's the radio DJ has a stack of music that the radio owning company and the music publishing companies have decided are going to get play. Yeah. And so, you know, whatever the, I don't even know how many of the big name artists get to decide what is released as a single or for radio play off of their albums. Do they get any input mm -hmm. in that or is it just chosen by someone else for them? And then that's distributed to the radio companies and the DJs are told, you'll play this. And that's, I mean, I know that that's one of the reasons why certain songs get played so much that I get sick of them. Mm -hmm. And I have often found when I, I hear a song by an artist that I like in the random times that I listen to the radio, and then I go looking for more of their music, I often find that there are other songs off that disc that I find much more appealing, much more interesting, and I <laughs> wonder why they don't get radio play. And it often turns out that this is because these are songs that don't follow the correct formula, whatever that formula yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. These are sad truths. And while I do think there's nothing wrong with using a structure 
to help define a song, a story, a painting, a photograph. I do think that once you've learned those rules, once you've found this structure and you've learned that you can build something within it, it's time to break away from that. Don't completely shatter the structure, but start stepping Mm -hmm. away, start extending bits out from that and you will learn and make more interesting things. And Mm -hmm. I also learned back in college in particular, when I was studying, like my degree is in creative writing. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. One of the things that I learned was that creative criticism, constructive criticism is very helpful, but it must always be balanced with what you wanted to achieve in the thing you're creating. If someone says to you, I don't think this idea in the poem or or the story is clear, you should pay attention to that. That's valid because you do want to share your work with other people. But if you keep reading it or listening to it and it says what you want it to say, that matters too. Balance Mm -hmm. that. Balance those two things and decide how important is it to me to make this clear to this particular person or these other people? How important is it to me to believe that there are other people out there who will see the same thing I see in what I've made? Mm. That's that's why big artists, when they get asked for advice for younger artists, they say, be yourself. Yeah. Play around. But then that, t- mm-hmm. that takes us back to what is success. And if mm-hmm. you spend a lot of time playing around when your idea of success is filling a stadium, you're probably, those two things probably won't connect for a long time. Yeah, big risk. Mm-hmm. And then you decide, is this risk worth taking? Mm-hmm. But then I do feel that the advent of the internet has has altered that it's a lot easier now to generate at least a small following while you're taking risks and have people go this is cool this is interesting and and grassroots share that around it's a lot easier to do that Mm -hmm. that's true okay and now that we've rambled all over the place as usual what's next the last song uh from only one more yeah, so six sad. songs. Oh, so sad. Uh, we're going to the mid-80s. The album, the third album by Boston is called Third Stage. And we'll oh. listen to Amanda. They waited quite a while for the next album then. Probably the record company troubles. Yeah, but I'm just, that makes me think about something else that I've been noticing. We'll We'll get to the song in a minute, but... I don't know, again, if this is related to things like internet culture or not, but I wonder if there was a lot of concern in between the two albums as as more time went by after the second album, if there were people going, oh, the band must have broken up. Oh, they're never going to put out another album. Oh, they're dead. Because that's something Mm -hmm. I've seen with, with artists these days is that there's this sort of expectation that an artist will put out an album every couple of years 
And if they don't, then that means they're over. Yeah, and then you, you create drama around that. Yeah. But then there there are these artists that they don't put out anything for four or five years, and then they put out something, and it's freaking amazing. Mm-hmm. You know. But in, in the media, a lot of stupid stuff was said in the meantime. Yeah. A lot of assumptions were made. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what exactly went down with Boston in those times. Well. But I think the next album was pretty good. Okay. Well, let's listen to Amanda by Boston. I'm in love with you. Again, a song where I'm listening to it and I'm going, I know this, this is familiar. Oh, hey, chorus. I know this chorus. Amanda. Yeah. Yeah. It does make me wonder whenever an artist makes a song with a specific name in it. Why did they choose that name? <laughs> was it just a random name? Were they thinking of someone particular? Was it inspired by probably, a movie? You know, probably sounded good with the melody. Could be. I noticed a couple of other things that when they, especially in the second chorus, when they lead in, you get the melody of the chorus on the guitars, including mm-hmm. the 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 rhythm of the syllables not just the notes mm-hmm. uh leading in and then they break into the chorus the the vocal chorus which i thought was interesting but something else usually mm-hmm. when you have uh, a single singer and then some backup artists or, or backup singers you don't get they may be singing the same words, although that's not common. It's usually more of a call and answer kind of thing, a response. In this case, I noticed they're following along on the same notes for most of each line in the chorus, and then somebody pitches upward at the end of each line and, and climbs up, which I think is, um, to me, that seems unusual. Usually when you're, you're having a line it drops down. The pitches drop down. Mm -hmm. And in this case, someone, and it isn't even the main melody line. It's not. It's, it's the lead singer I can follow is still sticking with a, I don't want to say flat, but a, a more evenly pitched series of notes, but someone else in the background is pitching upward and climbing, Mm -hmm. not even on the name before that. Yep. Uh Uh-huh. And I found that okay. to be, it, it changes the way that it sounds. And at least the way I'm wired, I have a tendency to want to follow the higher pitched sound. So that if I was singing that, I would end up following those higher no- notes, even though that's not what the main singer is singing. Mm-hmm. I would end up mm-hmm. following those notes anyway, because that's what my brain does. Mm-hmm. I should play it again. That's interesting. But I am really, I am curious now. But who, who's Amanda? Is that just a random name they pulled out of a hat? Somebody's daughter? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we've had songs in the past where it's a love song, and then it finally there's a love song to someone's daughter. Mm-hmm. And there's, then there's a lot of singers who who spare us the real names of the people they're talking about because right. they don't want to put the the ex-girlfriends on. They don't want to put that out there. 
So they just choose a name that sounds good? Yeah, or and then you get the singers who don't use any names at all, and the entire world listens to their music and goes frenzy, frenziedly crazy trying to figure out who they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Ugh, yeah. That's a different conversation. We're not going there. And then there's Ian Gillen, who had a friend once in a room, and they had a good time, but uh-huh. it ended much too. <laughs> that's all you've got. <laughs> <laughs> It's like so, so non-committal and and not real and yep. Mm-hmm. Look at these album covers. These this is the first and second album. Spaceships. Yep. It's the seventies. And the first time I saw them, I didn't pay attention. I thought these were mushrooms. I mean, yeah. that was the that was the 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 imagery of spaceships at the time. Was you either had the sleek. Uh, finned kind of rocket ship or you had the round uh, mushroom shaped UFO kind of thing that was Mm. the imagery and I guess they didn't mind that they looked like mushrooms and then uh, there's there's a city on top of that which took me another few years to see under a dome there's a city in both covers Mm -hmm. it's the same ship just different angle Mm -hmm. the design is exactly the same and this ship in the fir- on the first album cover is leaving maybe an exploding planet. So off we go. And now they seem to have found a new place to be. Mm-hmm. And do you see the back of the ship? These are guitar-shaped ships. The neck of the guitar is behind. Oh, that's what I'm seeing. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that took I'm... me another, another few years. <laughs> the angle is kind of weird. I'm trying to remember, I mean, the idea that humans would move through space in in cities on ships because we destroyed the planet or whatever was was a 70s kind of idea. I can't, I know several authors t- treated on it, but I can't bring to mind any of the specifics right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was connected up with the I don't want to say the discovery, but but that was the point at which sci-fi really began to connect in with the idea that true faster than light travel was not going to be possible. That that the mm-hmm. science we had at the time was not going to permit faster than light travel, which meant that if humans wanted to leave our solar system we were going to have to do so in generation ships. We were going to have to do so in a way that allowed humans to continue to live for a long time on a ship that moves mm, through yeah. space. And so then you got the idea of these cities on the ships. And in some cases, they were literally cities with like the dome on the top, the way this is depicted in the album covers. Some of the stories mm-hmm. were like that because for whatever reason the author or the creator didn't choose to conceive of a more enclosed kind of city ship the way that the international space station actually works which incidentally if we could figure out you know how to if well not even if we could if we chose to get it started moving would move through space just fine it doesn't matter what shape a ship is once it's in space. There is not anywhere near enough friction to make any darn bit of difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah, It's just a question of propulsion. 
And again, because there's practically no friction, once you begin propelling something through space, that's even if you don't actually increase the propulsion on the ship or whatever, the speed at which it's moving will continue to increase because there's nothing to slow it down. Mm. There's no force to counter it. Wow. Which is why if you read really good sci-fi space books, they'll talk about breaking. They'll talk about deceleration when they reach their destination because there's nothing to stop you. You have mm. to actively decelerate. You know, if you're riding in a car on Earth or, or any kind of vehicle, the truth is that while we have deceleration, we have brakes, in terms of bringing something to a stop, that's honestly not necessary. What's, what's required to bring something to a stop is enough distance for friction to eat away all the momentum. But that's not mm -hmm. applicable in space. You got to think outside the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Boston, apparently, uh, the door is still open. The last album, as far as I remember, came out in 2013. They were still touring. Hmm. Tom Schultz is still leading it. But in 2007, this amazing singer that we've been listening to, Brad Delp, committed suicide. Oh, my God. And we don't have hope to listen to exactly the same Boston anymore. Hmm. I think it was depression, as far as <sighs> I remember. Well, but it's not a big story. We don't know details like for some celebrities. And on the one hand, I'm glad of that because that's an incredibly painful thing. And on the other hand, speaking from a certain amount of experience, the more public that kind of thing can become when you look at anybody who seems successful and then suddenly or apparently suddenly commits suicide, I think it's important to to look at the method, to look at what was going on in their life, to look past their seeming success to what else is going on, not just actual events in their life, but what anything at all they might have left behind to say what was in their head. Mm -hmm. so it's very easy to look at someone who seems successful they have a job or or they have income a roof over their head people who love them they're famous or popular or whatever and a lot of people when someone like that commits suicide they go i don't understand they had everything and the reality is <laughs> this is not how depression works for yeah. most people with ongoing depression the kind of depression that leads you to commit suicide it has absolutely nothing at all to do with the external success elements of your life. It has nothing to do with that whatsoever. The successful people with depression often say, I, I made it big, but it did nothing. And that was something I learned that was surprising. It uh, didn't help. I'm absolutely certain that some of them would also tell you that they don't see their success as something they achieved. That their success was dependent on their bandmates, on mm -hmm. uh, managers, on anybody but them. That mm -hmm. they would not have been successful on their own. That it took all of these other people because depression is often 
accompanied by a really incredibly terrible sense of self-esteem that, yeah. you know, they can have, um, an amazing best-selling book that many people praise. They can have a beautiful song and they look at that thing and all they see are the mistakes they made. All they see are the places where it could be better. Mm-hmm. They don't see the other things. They don't see the beauty of it. Um, I don't know how true this is for all depressives, but I do know that for me in particular, I do have depression. Part, a significant chunk of my depression is owed to a biochemical imbalance in my brain. I was born with that. Mm -hmm. There is no real getting away from that. I am on medication and the kind of medication that helps remedy that biochemical imbalance is a serotonin reuptake inhibitor. And what that Mm -hmm. means is that the elements in my brain that recycle serotonin, which it can simply be called the happiness chemical those elements work too well the serotonin doesn't stick mm. around in my brain long enough to allow me to experience happiness for a long-term period it makes it much more difficult for me to form happy memories and all the other associated corollaries with that 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 ramifies out pretty far if you can't make a happy memory if you don't make them well the world starts to seem doomy and gloomy sort of all the time because you can't remember clearly the times when it wasn't. Hmm. And you start to emphasize in your own mind this, all of the bad things because that's what you remember the most clearly. Hmm. And so I take yep. this medication that helps to prevent those scavengers from working quite so well. It tricks them into thinking that the chemicals of the medication are actually serotonin, I think is how that works. I could be completely wrong about that. But, mm-hmm. and from the outside, nobody would know. I'd, when you're depressed, you, you learn to lie really well. You mm. learn You learn to fake it. Because if you don't, well, we're not going to go down that path right now. We're not going to mm-hmm. go down that path right now. Uh, Another I time. I have I, enough I depression songs for you. Yeah, I don't need to confront that at the moment. I don't. I don't need to. Just know that if you also have depression, whatever anybody else tells you, medication can help. Uh, think of it like mm-hmm. eyeglasses. Uh, we don't. Yeah. Most of us don't think too much about putting on any kind of eye correction stuff. It's just. It's the way thing. It things are. Medication can be the same way. You can keep going. If you have to take it one minute at a time, that's what you do. And sometimes mm-hmm. you just pick a song and it resonates with you and you scream it out and then you feel better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And then you so, find a band and you go, this band saved my life. Right. Okay. Right. Tell us about what the kitties are doing or... Uh, or you can go to the book. Let's the book go with what the kitties are doing. They have been uh, they've been pretty happy in the last week or so. So our couch is about two inches off of the floor. It's it's not far enough for a cat to get under there. <laughs> what it is far yeah. enough for is for all the toys to get smacked under there. Yes. <sighs> so I took a lightsaber. And swiped it under one square of the couch. And it's a pretty big couch. One square. Six toys. Six toys popped out. 
I've been looking for some of those toys for months. Six toys. And I think four of them are now missing again. I don't think they've got back under the couch yet. But I could probably check. But just, and then I went and swiped the under and there was. The other squares of that couch. I, I checked the others. The, this particular, the, this couch has, um, it, it's sort of partly square shaped. Um, we have the long line across the back and then uh, a corner. But there's also a kind of a lounge part. And that's that's the one I checked for toys. And because it sticks out in the room and it's, it's accessible from three sides. And mm -hmm. because of its position with relation to the rest of the house, it collects the most toys. That's where most of them mm -hmm. were. I found two or three under some of the other bits of the couch. And I think mm -hmm. I need to just move the couch and find out what else has been hidden under there. Um, and I picked up all the toys and put them in the cat's toy box, which they have access to. It's just a shoe box that sits on the floor and, and holds the toys in. So they can reach out and pull out whatever they want. And I put one of the toy mouse in the box and 30 seconds later Donna had it in her mouth and was running down the hall <laughs> and she would drop it and whap it around and do the crazy cat hunting dance and then I would come close to go I'm going to throw that for you no she picks it up in her mouth and runs down the hall again like carries it around <laughs> like some kind of baby I don't even know and I've watched her do that with a couple of other toys in the last couple of days I brought up the poor tortured dragonfly from downstairs yesterday uh, they like that one because it has a bell on it they like the jingly noises mm -hmm. they like the jingly noises and there's a, a stuffed boot shaped kind of thing with Christmas colors that Marari quite likes uh, she's been fetching that for me uh, but at the moment the only one I see in here is Jana and she's asleep in the top of the cat tree Oh, her ears are sticking out of the hole. Usually it's toes that are sticking out of the hole. She's, she seems to be flipped the other way around right now. Uh, I also turned up a couple of uh, Silvervine sticks. Silvervine is a... Uh, I don't know if it's actually the same as catnip, but it's a cat... It, cats react... Some cats react to it the same way they do to catnip. It's just... It comes mm. in stick form and they kind of chew on it. So I turned a couple of those up as well, and Jonna picked one up and dropped it in the water bowl. I have no idea why she dropped it in the water bowl. To flavor the water. I guess. I've never noticed her to play with the water before. No flavor. Flavor the water. <laughs> the water does not need flavor. <laughs> ah, maybe it's a nice one. Uh, maybe it is. I don't know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I do know that Cats typically prefer it if you keep their water bowls very separated from where they go to the bathroom, which is sort of mm. obvious. But but they also like it if you have water bowls that are well separated from where their food is. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder if that's an instinct related to uh, water contamination by, by blood or by other innards of, of animals. Even if, you know, cats have domesticated us for... 5,000 years now, at least. But they still have these <laughs> instincts. You didn't know that? Cat that they did it? Yeah. 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 We didn't domesticate cats. Cats domesticated humans. That's, they do seem to be in control, yeah. That, that's how that worked. That's <laughs> I, I guarantee you that the first cat somewhere in Mesopotamia or Egypt 
um, decided that they no longer wanted to hunt mice where the grain was stored and they just walked into a human's house and said, I live here now. And the human probably tried to throw them out and the cat would just keep walking back in. Mm -hmm. That was a positive thing in our evolution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> There's a, an Egyptian okay. statue of a cat, a little statuette, that at least according to the information I have found, it's got hieroglyphics on it or something that says the cat's name. And the cat's name is Sweetie in Egyptian. Mm. Which I think just tells you all along how cats and humans have regarded each other for thousands of years. If this ancient, ancient cat statue tells you that the cat's name was Sweetie. Of course it was, yeah. Yeah. Internet says about silver vine, expect a more intense response compared to catnip. Not all of the cats yeah. in my house react to, like, some of them prefer catnip and some of them prefer the silver vine. The girls seem to prefer the silver vine. The boys mm -hmm. seem to prefer the catnip. Although, I've also noticed that catnip does not tend to make any of them crazy. What happens is that they hug the thing with the catnip in it and rub themselves on it and drool a lot. <laughs> and that, yeah. <laughs> but they all seem to be in uh, pretty good condition, pretty good moods. Nobody's done anything particularly crazy. Uh, and I suppose I'll have to go on a toy hunting expedition at some point. I, I'm not really sure why they just carry them around. I understand the part where they fetch me the toys. They want to be praised and rewarded and that this is a thing that happens. You know, we've trained each other. I don't understand why they just carry them around somewhere and then leave them places where I'm not. They're doing know. their own thing. Yeah. I mean, that is kind of the thing with cats compared to most of the dogs I've ever had any experience with is cats are... You know, people say cats are solitary and I don't think that's quite right. Independent is a, a reasonably good word. Mm. Um, at least all the cats we have right now, the Trouble Trio, at least, wants to be where the humans are. They don't necessarily want to be in our lap or anything. They just want to be mm. in the same room as us. They just want to hang out with us in the same room. And and they'll do their own thing. It's it's like we were talking about a couple of episodes about being alone together. That's that's kind of mm -hmm. how our cats are. The bad company stuff. Yep. yep. So, the author I would like to give you this week is named Guy Gabriel K. Um, Guy K is a Canadian author. He is also a I don't know what they call it in Canada. In America, it's it's uh, bar certified. I don't know what they call it in Canada. But he is he is a, a licensed lawyer. I don't know what his field of study is. Mm -hmm. uh, and he got... I don't want to say he got his start because that's not quite right. But the first thing that he did, as far as I know, that was related to writing and fantasy and publishing wasn't actually something of his own. He worked together with Christopher Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien's son, after Tolkien's death to go through the vast amounts of writing and papers that Tolkien left behind. 
out of that work that they did together going through that came first the Silmarillion, which is effectively the mythological structure behind underpinning the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. Um, Very cool. And then a couple of other things. I don't know how instrumental Guy K was in assembling the 12 book series that's known as the history of Middle Earth, which really takes all of Tolkien's papers and delves into the development of the entire matter of Arda. I don't know how instrumental he was in that, but I do know that he was pretty closely linked with the original published Silmarillion that Tolkien never actually finished. He never got it in a state where he accepted that it was finished <laughs> is the thing. He, mm-hmm. he ran into that perfectionism problem that a lot of us have. But I think it's probably fair and accurate to say that as a result of that, Guy K was inspired to do some of his own writing and some of his own work. And I believe the first thing that he published was a trilogy known as the Fionavar Tapestry. It is an intense little trilogy that takes some of the less familiar Celtic mythology, things like the Wild Hunt and and Underhill and the Fisher King, that kind of idea, and combines it with a a portal fantasy, a travel to other worlds fantasy that was pretty common in the late in the mid to late eighties for fantasy writing that you would take people from our world or the world as it was then and dump them through this portal to another world that they then had to interact with and that they might be instrumental in in a prophetic kind of sense or -hmm. that they might be needed to fulfill certain roles that the people of that world couldn't fulfill a lot of what characterizes guy k's work are tough choices painful situations where a character is confronted with complex motivations on the part of everything around them including themselves Uh, characters who have to cope with the idea that the world is not perfect that they are not perfect that they have connected themselves emotionally to someone who may end up having no choice but to hurt them it it he deals heavily with the idea of caring for someone and not being able to save them, of sacrificing yourself to save someone else. Mm -hmm. And pretty much every single book that he's published deals with these kinds of intense, complicated things. It's very rare for any book of his, even in this first trilogy, to feature a true, purely evil villain. He's extremely talented at giving you characters all throughout the story from all perspectives who have their own motivations, who have flaws, who have good things, and the way that those flaws and good things interact. Mm -hmm. And as a result, none of these are simple stories. This first trilogy, we lose at least one character. He chooses to sacrifice himself, I think, in the first book in order to put an end to some magic. The thing is, the character is presented as 
he's the one who revels most deeply in life. He's the one who lives the mm-hmm. hardest. And that's the one that, and he doesn't, he's not made to sacrifice himself in any way. He has offered this choice and it's not presented in such a way as to make him think that if he didn't choose to sacrifice himself, everything would go to hell and it would be the end of the world. It is presented as a solution to the problem they're facing. And he chooses that this is the solution he wants to give. And he kind of does the classic the, the fairly classic fantasy thing of someone confronted with a choice like that. He sneaks off to do the thing because he thinks that mm-hmm. his friends will stop him. And, and some of them would have, and not all of them, though. And that's another element that Guy K tends to play up in his stories is the a sort of external third-person awareness that we don't always know people as well as we think we do. Hmm that you may make an assumption about a person about the way they would react to something that you do and be utterly wrong. After that first trilogy, after the Fionavar tapestry, he moves into what I think of as historical fantasy. It's, it's very similar to Jacqueline Carey's historical fantasy in that it is inspired by and reflects certain historical periods and locations in our modern earth his map is is pretty different uh and not all of them are set in the same world space but pretty much every single one of them is inspired by specific historical elements and he'll try to tell you that he doesn't think of it as historical fantasy and frankly i don't care that's (laughs) that's like jk rowling trying to tell us that harry potter isn't fantasy you're, there, there are times when the way an author or, or creator defines their work is just wrong. And in this case, <laughs> this is absolutely historical fantasy. Um, some of them are more directly or more clearly inspired by historical events than others. Uh, one of my favorite books is called Tigana. And as far as I can tell, it is not inspired by any kind of specific event. What it is inspired by is the interactions between city-states in Renaissance Italy. Mm. It is one of the few books that has, where, where the villain is a bit more clearly defined. And yet, as I said, he, even this villain, you are given in more than enough information to comprehend what drove him to do what he did. You are given more than enough information to sympathize with this person. And there are characters who do come to sympathize with him. And yet, they still need to do the things that they do. And mm-hmm. that that's kind of one of the driving underpinnings of, of almost all the work that he's made. Is that even our main characters may come to sympathize or at least comprehend the villain they're facing... But that doesn't change the things that they need to do. It just makes it more painful to make that decision. The Lions yeah, of al hmm? Yes. That's how, life, that's how life is, yeah. Yes, and that's one of the reasons I love these books. But they're not easy reads because they are that kind of realistic. Many of us who read fantasy and sci-fi, we do so for the escapism, for the idea that there might be a world where evil is obvious and the choices are simple. 
if that's what you're looking for, I don't recommend you read Guy K. If you're mm-hmm. just looking for a different world to escape into, um, I think it's I think it's good to read him because sometimes I have found that reading a story where other people are facing choices that are difficult because of empathy, because of understanding of other people, it helps me feel better about the fact that I'm facing that all the time. To be to mm-hmm. be reminded that there are other world spaces, other stories where this is a true thing and no victory is complete and that's okay. That you do the best that you can. You make the choices based on what you know at the time. That hindsight is twenty twenty, and that's okay. Yeah. My other favorite book by him is called The Lions of Algersan. And this one in particular is more obviously and more directly inspired by real life events. It is inspired by the Reconquista in medieval Spain. Uh, there's a lot of a lot of things that are different. Uh, there is no Ferdinand and Isabella, that kind of thing. But the characters that you are presented with and the situations in which they find themselves, the clash of religions, mm-hmm. is is very clearly inspired by that period when the Christians of northern Spain were driving the Moors of southern Spain back across the Strait of Gibraltar. Mm-hmm. And again, you are presented with characters whose lives are complex, who are connected to characters who could easily be perceived as on the wrong side, on the side of evil. And yet you are given more than enough information to sympathize with characters on all sides. And the climax of the story is two of our main characters essentially being required by the culture by the times by their own honor to face off against each other with the clear understanding that only one of them can survive Hmm. and because of what you've learned because of the way that you experience them throughout the books you don't know who to root for there's (laughs) no way to well I mean some people probably decide but I every time I get to that part of the story it's just painful because I want them both to live I want them to not be in this situation. I want there to have been choices. And yet, as you move through the book, you can see, especially after you've read it the first time, you can see clearly every inevitable step that led them there. You can see the way that choices that they didn't make and could not have influenced lead them to this Mm. point. And for me, it's a reminder, you know, I have a real problem with wanting to control things. I I want control. I don't like it when things that affect my life deeply are not in my power to change. Mm -hmm. And to have a book that reminds me that that's a thing. And it's, I don't know, there's something about being able to see that in other spaces that makes it easier for me. This, this sort of reflection of I'm not alone, that this is an experience other people have as well. That's really helpful for me. Um, he does not just focus on European-inspired history. There is a duology that takes place in his world space 
that was heavily inspired by the Byzantine Empire and the, the slow collapse of the, the Byzantine Empire. There's one that's inspired by the Viking invasion, invasions. There are two that are inspired by the history of ancient China. Hmm. I have not read the most recent ones. The last three seem to occur around uh, the interactions of the two pieces of the old Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire and the rise of Rome. But I haven't read those in a while, so I can't really talk clearly about them. But I don't have any reason to believe that he would not hold true to form and continue to give me complex characters with comprehensible and painful motivations, some of which aren't particularly logical. You know, that's one of the other things that I quite like about his characters is that not all of their motivations are predicated on what's happening around them on events. Some of them are are instinctive. Some of them are born out of childhood experiences that they don't even think about in that way. Mm, yeah. Uh, old fears. They're, his characters are incredibly human. And I find that to be a characteristic that for all that I love a lot of author a lot of other authors, that level of detail and humanity in books that aren't doorstoppers is difficult to achieve. And I find him to be extremely skilled at it. I wonder if authors have lists of things to make their characters more realistic. Um that absolutely depends on the author. Um most authors, when they talk about how they develop a story, will tend to fall into one of two categories. Some authors are, I think it might have been George Martin who came up with these terms, but I could be wrong. Some authors are cultivators. They, they plant some seeds and the story just kind of grows. They don't know where it's going. They didn't write out anything. They just sort of follow where it goes. Mm -hmm. uh, other authors are... I don't remember what, what George Martin calls them, but I think of them as builders. They have a diagram. They have a plan. They have, mm -hmm. you know, these are the sorts of authors that will will write out a bullet point summary and then continue to add more bullet points and more bullet points until they're eventually writing whole paragraphs of story. And that's how it comes together. Like they know where it's going. They're like, okay, here's the rising point and here's the tension and this is going to happen here. And, you know, it's, it's very, very planned out. I do not think that it is fair to say that any, either of those is better. I think it depends on how you view the world. I think it depends on what works best for you. Um, I know authors that kind of do something in the middle. They have a basic outline and they know that they're going to get to these points, but they don't know how they're going to get there. Mm -hmm. um, I've had authors who use that method or are used by that method. Tell me that there have been occasions when they're meandering towards a certain point and the characters effectively take control of the story and say, and say yeah, that outline you had, forget about it. We're going over here now. And you're mm -hmm. kind of looking at the story and going, wait a minute, this is not what I had planned. And the characters are just, no, we're going here now. I see and, this from authors on social media a lot. Yeah. They make memes. 
Yeah, that, that's um, even authors for whom the outline method is is very fairly rigid will occasionally find that the the story they're telling is not the story they thought they were telling. And for for many of us storytellers, it's it's easiest to express to other people as the sense of the characters took control of the story uh, that they decided. Mm-hmm. You know, I I find that I experience that fairly frequently that I, I begin to develop a character and their story and there will come a point where I will suddenly know something about that character that I didn't know before and it it might not completely change the story I'm telling, but it certainly gives it a completely different shade that I suddenly realize oh that's why they're doing this it wasn't just this one thing it's this other thing that i didn't know about before and i do think of that myself as as the character telling me things you know suddenly mm-hmm. they decided to tell me xyz why didn't you tell me that before you know it, it it's it's a bit uh disconcerting at times to have that happen to think you know where you're going and this character that you've created they're yours and you don't have nearly as much control as you thought you had. Strangely interacting with other corners of your own brain. Yes, exactly. It is exactly <laughs> like that. And Jana just yawned at me and I stuck my finger in her mouth. And now she's like, Mom, what are you doing? <laughs> Mom, why you do that? Begging for it. <laughs> Kitten teeth are very cute. So, yeah, I think... The most recent book that Guy K published was called All the Seas of the World, and it was published just over a year ago. So I should probably go find that and read it. Uh, a sequel to A Brightness, Brightness Long Ago. Right. Mm-hmm. Which was the prequel to Children of Earth and Sky. So you see, it can be a little complicated. Um, uh-huh. It's in the middle. Yeah. Uh, Four or five of his books are connected together in the sense that they take place in the same general world space. But you will, unless they're explicitly described as sequels or prequels to each other, you will not encounter the same characters. Uh, What you will encounter is, is, as I say, the same world space, the same kind of religions and, and cultures. One of the things that I quite like about his books is many authors, even when writing fantasy, will take Christianity, for example, or Islam, and file off a couple of names and call it done. And while it is very easy to look at the religions in Guy K's favorite world space and analogize them to Christianity, to Judaism, to Islam, he changes enough of it that I don't feel that it's quite so predictable. Mm. It's it's clear the interactions of the characters and, and some of the things that they believe, you can see the analogies, but it's not, it, it's, he's, he's done more with, the way that he shifts them than simply filed off the name Jesus. And I, I appreciate that. It probably helps people immerse themselves more because instead they will be thinking, oh yeah, that's a typical Muslim thing to do. Right, 
And, th- and there are. I mean, especially in The Lions of Alrasan, which is one of the reasons that I love the book. It's because it's based on the Reconquista. There are very much elements where you look at what some of the characters are doing and you go, oh, yeah, that's a very Christian thing to do. That's a very Muslim thing to do. And yet, because of his skill with characterization and because he shifted those away from direct analogies, it's easier to put aside the prejudices and the expectations that you've developed from our real world to look Mm -hmm. at those characters. Well, kids, thank you for listening. Go listen to Boston and uh... make sure you dance to smoking. When you need to dance, <laughs> put on smoking and dance. What's that phrase? Yeah. Uh, dance like no one is mm. watching. Mm-hmm. Mama, I ain't joking. And if you want some nice fantasy, check out Guy Gabriel K. And uh, we'll see you next time. Right. Uh, Remember to grow your hair as long as you want. Listen to as much heavy metal as you can stand. And take care of yourselves, my meowsters. Bye-bye. Bye.